Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is entitled, Peace is Patriotic, Reflections on the Fourth of July, and is based upon the readings for Sunday, July 2nd, 2006. However else you might characterize the Bible, some parts of it are so gruesome that you wonder why the writers included them in a sacred book. The Old Testament reading for this week recounts David's lament at the death of King Saul. If you turn back one page in your Bible, you can read about what today we would call a war crime. Listen to 1 Samuel chapter 31 verses 8 to 10. The next day, when the Philistines came to strip the dead, they found Saul and his three sons fallen on Mount Gilboa. They cut off his head and stripped off his armor, and they sent messengers throughout the land of the Philistines to proclaim the news in the temple of their idols and among their people. They put his armor in the temple of the Ashtaroths and fastened his body to the wall of Bethshan. Right after reading about the mutilation of Saul's corpse, I happened to read an interview with Chris Hedges, author of the book, War is a Force that Gives Us Meaning. In the interview, Hedges recalled what he had seen in 20 years as a war correspondent. His war narrative is separated from King Saul's by 3,000 years, but the two accounts are eerily similar. In war, says Hedges, quote, routine death becomes boring. That's why you would go into central Bosnia and see bodies crucified on the sides of barns, or why in El Salvador genitals were stuffed in people's faces. Mutilation, you know, the body as sort of trophy, the body as a kind of performance art, end quote. Nailing Saul's beheaded corpse to the wall of a Philistine temple and the bodies of young soldiers to Bosnian barns are horrific reminders of the true nature of war, whether ancient or modern, and in stark contrast to the sanitized sound bites of embedded reporters or the propaganda of government spokesmen. So are Mylae of 1968 dragging dead American soldiers through the streets of Mogadishu in 1993, torturing prisoners in Abu Ghraib in 2003, hanging the naked and charred bodies of four American soldiers from a bridge over the Euphrates River in 2004, and now, apparently, so too, murdering two dozen citizens in the Iraqi town of Haditha. You might explain these desecrations as rare exceptions committed by deranged individuals, but I believe that Hedges is right when he characterizes them as the inevitable consequences of war. They peel back the rhetorical veneer of war to reveal its true nature as what Hedges calls, quote, almost pure sin, end quote. If you want to know what real war is like, says Hedges, listen to the losers. The vanquished are a better guide than the victors. Listen to Hedges.
The losers see through the empty jingoism of those who use the abstract words of glory, honor, and patriotism to mask the cries of the wounded, the senseless killing, war profiteering, and chest-pounding grief. They know the lies the victors often do not acknowledge, the lies covered up in stately war memorials and mythic war narratives, filled with stories of courage and comradeship. They know the lies that permeate the thick, self-important memoirs of amoral statesmen who make wars but do not know war. The vanquished know the essence of war, which is death. They grasp that war is really necrophilia. They see that war is a state of almost pure sin and with its goals of hatred and destruction. They know how war fosters alienation, leads inevitably to nihilism, and is a turning away from the sanctity and preservation of life. All other narratives about war too easily fall prey to the allure and seductiveness of violence, as well as the attraction of the godlike power that comes with a license to kill with impunity. In a spiral where violence begets violence, the losers also savor their bitter memories of the past in hopes of revenge in the future. That's why Slobodan Milosevic's war rhetoric reached back to Serbia's humiliation by the Ottomans at the Battle of Kosovo 600 years earlier in the year 1389. Or why, in the text for this week, King David learned of Saul's death, and when he did, he murdered the messenger who brought the news. Instead of waging peace, David lamented the demise of Israel's military might. We read in 2 Samuel chapter 1, verse 27, Oh, how the mighty have fallen! The weapons of war have perished. Some wars appear necessary, even unavoidable. For all his passionate opposition to war, Hedges admits that some wars are a moral imperative. The gist of Samantha Power's important book, A Problem from Hell, is precisely that, the moral failure of the United States to intervene to prevent genocides in places like Bosnia, Rwanda, or Darfur. When we lived in Moscow from 1991 to 1995, Russian war veterans in their 70s would smile and grab our hands on the sidewalk at metro stations, thanking America for what we did in World War II. We were allies against Hitler, they would exclaim. But war as a regrettable last resort, when every eligible citizen-soldier does his part, is different than the unilateral and preemptive use of military force waged by the proxy of a professional army as a normalized tool of diplomacy. In recent years, a growing number of observers have lamented what the cultural conservative Andrew Basevich calls the new American militarism. Our military idolatry, Basevich believes, is now so comprehensive and beguiling that it pervades our national consciousness 
and perverts our national policies. We have normalized war, he says, romanticized military life that formerly was deemed degrading and inhuman. We measure our national greatness in terms of military superiority and harbor naive, unlimited expectations about how waging war, long considered a tragic last resort that signaled failure, can further our national self-interests. Utilizing what he calls a military metaphysic to justify these misguided ambitions to create the world in our own image with ideals that we imagine are universal has taken about 30 years to emerge in its present form. It's a problem not merely of the government or of any single administration, says Basevich, but of American society at large. When we moved to Moscow in September 1991, a defrocked dissident priest named Gleb Yakunin was grabbing the headlines. During the Soviet period, Yakunin was a champion of religious freedom and a harsh critic of the Russian Orthodox Church's cooperation with the government. Because of his prophetic stance, he was barred from his priesthood, imprisoned for five years, banished to internal exile for an additional five years, and then finally released in 1987. After his release, he continued his outspoken criticisms as a political leader in Russia's emerging democracy, and eventually he was elected to the parliament. When he published materials from the newly accessible KGB archives about hierarchies who served as KGB agents, and demanded that the Orthodox Church publicly repent, the Patriarchy had had enough. In 1997, it excommunicated him from the Church. A few weeks ago, I was watching a book program on C-SPAN and was shocked to see Noam Chomsky giving a speech at West Point. A professor of linguistics from MIT who describes himself as a libertarian socialist and the United States is one of the world's leading terrorist states, speaking at our military academy? The show reminded me of the remarkable privilege, opportunity, and even obligation that we have of dissent. Specifically Christian dissent, like Gleb Yakunin's, that reminds believers how uncritical allegiance to state ideology threatens Christian integrity is one of the greatest services that Christians can offer their country. So, although I don't normally get my theology from bumper stickers on cars, I do pray this 4th of July that our country can turn from its militaristic ways and proudly embrace peace as patriotic. And now for further reflection. Number one, what has been your experience of war? Number two, how do you see Christians responding to the ethics of war? Number three, what are the implications of the fact that 70 to 90 percent of war deaths are now civilian? Number four, do you think our country would think differently about militarism if we had compulsory conscription? Number five, 
How do we honor the sacrifices made by our soldiers while dissenting from militaristic ideology? And for further reflection, see the book by Chris Hedges with the title, War is a Force That Gives Us Meaning. For books this week, I review the book by Becky Garrison entitled, Red and Blue, Black and Blue Church. Eyewitness accounts of how American churches are hijacking Jesus bagging the Beatitudes and worshiping the almighty dollar. San Francisco, Josie Bass, 2006, 177 pages. When I was in seminary 25 years ago, we would hoot and holler over the biting satire of the Wittenberg Door magazine. I still remember a piece, for example, called Dogs Who Loved the Lord. Becky Garrison is a senior contributing editor for the Wittenberg Door and a self-described non-partisan religious satirist. And in this book, she collects some of her material to parody the pious. She reports on her coverage of the Republican National Convention, reflects on the environment, does a drive-by on the gay issue in a way too short chapter, which is only three pages long, wonders about pro-Israeli ideology and anti-Semitism, touches on volatile issues roiling our public schools, grapples with abortion, and decries our worship of mammon. Satire, of course, carries inherent risk factors. Skewering everyone equally can be hard. Garrison lambasts the left in its mainline insipid drivel but most of the fuel for her fire comes from the right. You read more about Pat Robertson, Jerry Falwell, and Tim LaHaye than you do about Bishop Spong or the Jesus Seminar. Sanctimony and sarcasm are close cousins of satire, so it's not hard to sound unctuous. At times, Garrison lapses into ad hominem swipes that add little to her humor. Do we really need to hear about the bad behavior of President Bush's twin girls? Nor will every reader warm to her smart-alecky style. Like most satire, you'll need to consult other resources for the heavy lifting on the issues that she raises. And finally, satire has limits in it in that it is always easier to criticize what you're against than to explain what you are for. To tear down rather than to build up, to generalize and exaggerate rather than to work through the complex details of difficult issues. These are minor quibbles though given the underlying message that Garrison conveys. First, as she notes in her preface, her mission as a Christian satirist is to mock idolatry. Given the seductive power of the many idols that tempt us, we should not shoot the messenger, however risky her task. Second, I'm always challenged by warnings about the cultural captivity of the church. However much believers might disagree about social, political, economic, and global issues, Surely we should be able to agree that whatever a Christian point of view looks like, it ought to look and sound very different than the cant and cliches from either the left or the right. 
And finally, Garrison sounds a very clear note about the command to love those with whom we disagree. She echoes the wisdom of the German pastor Martin Niemöller, who lived from 1892 to 1984. He protested Hitler's anti-Semite measures in person to the Fuhrer, and was eventually arrested and then imprisoned in labor camps from 1937 to 1945. He once admitted, quote, It took me a long time to learn that God is not the enemy of my enemies. He is not even the enemy of his enemies. Becky Garrison, Red and Blue God, Black and Blue Churches. For film this week, I review Roy Orbison and Friends, Black and White Nights, from all the way back in the year 1988. Recorded live at the Coconut Grove in Los Angeles' Ambassador Hotel, this documentary celebrates the music of the inimitable Roy Orbison, who lived from 1936 to 1988. Filmed in black and white, Orbison is joined by an all-star backup band, and admiring colleagues, by the way, including Bruce Springsteen, Elvis Costello, Jackson Brown, Bonnie Raitt, T-Bone Burnett, K.D. Lang, and others. Orbison had an amazing vocal range in addition to his signature falsetto, an understated and unadorned style that I find refreshing in our in-your-face age and a knack for writing songs that made other people famous. For example, Pretty Woman, Blue Bayou, Linda Ronstadt's version sold seven to eight million copies, Only the Lonely, and then his famous song, Crying. I watched this wonderful performance two different times on public television and highly recommend it for any baby boomer who ever piled a stack of 45s or 33s on your first record player. Yes, I said record player. Roy Orbison and Friends, Black and White Night, from the year 1988. And finally, for poetry this week, We've published a poem by Evan Boland, who was born in 1944, the title of which is The Emigrant Irish. Like oil lamps, we put them out the back of our houses, of our minds. We had lights better than, newer than, and then a time came, this time, and now we need them their dread makeshift example. They would have thrived on our necessities. What they survived, we could not even live. By their lights, now it is time to imagine how they stood there, what they stood with, that their possessions may become our power, cardboard, iron, their hardships parceled in them, Patience, fortitude, long-suffering in the bruise-colored dusk of the new world, and all the old songs, and nothing to lose. The Immigrant Irish by Evan Boland. 
Evan Bolin is Irish and the Bella Mayberry and Eloise Mayberry Knapp Professor in Humanities at Stanford University, where she directs the creative writing program. She's published nine volumes of poetry. Thank you for joining journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, July 2nd, 2006. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.